0: and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to the conversation. Hello everyone, you're listening to 2 for T and I'm your host Iona Talia coming to you from London. And my guest today is Stuart Ritchie. Stuart is a social psychologist at King's College London, And he is the author of Intelligence, All That Matters, in 2015, which I haven't yet read, Um, and most recently, Science Fictions, um, which was published this year, and is about really all the ways in which science can go wrong and be misleading. Welcome, Stuart.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: So I think it might be... um, I think it might be good to start with one of the most obvious ways in which uh, science can scientific re- um, research can be misleading or results can be misleading, and that is fraud. And I was quite astonished by um, by some of the examples of fraud that you gave. In particular, this Italian uh, trachea surgeon called um, Macchiarini. I can't remember his first name. Um, tell us that that story. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's a it's an amazing case. Uh, Paolo Macchiarini. He was a a, a kind of up and coming surgeon, uh, and he was based at the Karolinska Institute, which is in Sweden and in, 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 in Stockholm. And it's it's one of the best um, universities and best medical schools in the world. It's where you get your phone call from if you win the Nobel Prize in Medicine. So they they, they decide on Nobel Prizes there. So you know, it's a it's a really serious big deal university um, and medical school. And he was there. He was. Uh, um, several of the, the professors were urging them to hire him, and they eventually did um, because of his groundbreaking work on transplants. And of course, one of the big problems in transplant research is that, or in transplants in general, is that they often get rejected. So when you uh, give someone a skin graft or transplant an organ, um, you have to do a, a huge amount of work to, to make sure that it isn't rejected by the recipient's immune system. Um, And um, uh, uh, this was what he had claimed to uh, have have overcome, essentially, with this new uh, idea which he had, which was essentially that you took, and it was um, the trachea, the windpipe, you took it and you seeded it with um, stem cells from the recipient. So it sort of grew uh, stem cells, and then uh, you could transplant it. And he first showed that, or apparently showed that, by transplanting a a, a person's, a a kind of, you know, a deceased donor's uh, a windpipe into a, into a, 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 a recipient, but then he started doing it with artificial um, uh, windpipes, so ones that were not from donors. So this was revolutionary; it was really exciting. He published papers in some of the world's top journals, The Lancet being the main one. Which is, you know, if you get a paper in there as a as a as a medical researcher, you're doing extremely well. It's a it's a you know very highly respected scientific journal. And he did all these operations and he was in the news and it was all a big deal. Um, And then it turned out that actually the transplants were not working. And this was despite him reporting the transplants in the papers, in the scientific papers. So these were, you know, part of the scientific literature. He reported them as if they were extremely successful uh, and life saving operations. But in fact, the patients were dying, um, including. Uh, uh, several patients in uh, the Karolinska Institute, some in, in in Russia where he had other operations going on, some in the US, including a, a, a really um, young girl who he did this operation on. And he was essentially lying about the progress of the, the 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 operation. So that's, I mean, the first part. That's how bad it can get. Is that there's someone you know publishing top research who's who's you know fraudulently making up the results and and having a direct you know. Um, uh, effect on 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 people, it's not some kind of indirect effect where it kind of you know which is the main focus of the book where it kind of perverts the scientific literature and so on. This is a direct effect where he was you know he was giving these botched operations to people and and, and, kill, and killing them. Um and um and that's the first part. But the second part is how uh, and you know this is explained at length in the book. The second part is how the university essentially covered up for him. So the university um. Uh, was uh, was really trying to crack down on the whistleblowers who came out and said, "Look, we kind of suspect that these operations are not going well, um, and in fact we are being misreported." Um, they then um, got a an independent uh, researcher to come in and do an investigation. Um, he did an investigation and said, "This is scientific misconduct." Um, and they then said, "Well, actually, sorry, we've done our own investigation, and we don't think it's uh, we don't think it's, it's scientific misconduct." And only after. The case got media attention, um, so the, it, it became clear. There's a fascinating article in Vanity Fair, which became clear that Macchiarini was kind of a, acting like a sort of a con man. Um, he had a kind of romantic affair where he claimed to his uh, uh, his partner that he was the personal physician to the Pope. Um, and that he was going to get married to her and the Pope would officiate the wedding and the Obamas would be there and Elton John would do the, <laughs> the, the music and, and, uh, you know, kind of like really bizarre, outrageous, um, con man style things and uh, that, and also there was oh, and by the way, he was married at the time to someone else with, with several kids. Um, and also there was a, a documentary, um, which, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the documentary makers met the. Uh, uh, some of his patients and and really saw the really terrible state that they were in, um, which really didn't sound anything like the really glowing reports that had been written in the scientific journals. And eventually the the university at that point had to kind of uh, back down and say, look, we made a mistake. This is scientific misconduct. This is scientific fraud. The journal, which had published, you know, a kind of crowing editorial saying, this guy has been accused of fraud, but actually he's been exonerated now, then had to do a humiliating climb down as well and say, oh, no, sorry, we, we were wrong. It actually was a, a fraudulent thing. So, so you know, there's the first part, which is, you know, ha- happens, happens depressingly often, which is people publish fake results in scientific journals and get away with it for a long time. And then the second part is the kind of institutions uh, covering them up. And, you know, nobody wants to see this and nobody wants to believe that this is something that happens in science because, you know, uh, we want to believe that science is, is uh, you know, it's full of people who are just looking for the truth and are being really uh, uh, conscientious in doing so and people who actually want to help patients and so on. Um, nobody wants to hear it, but unfortunately, unfortunately, this is what happened in this case. It was a really extreme case and, you know, involved some of the most you know highly respected scientific institutions.
0: So why why did the Karolinska Institute deny for so long that fraud was going on? What 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 are the incentives that make make institutions of that kind even really prestigious institutions so defensive?
1: Well, I think it's it's straightforward embarrassment. Actually, I mean, I think it's mm-hmm. I think it's uh, they they had they had gone through this big long process of hiring him. Um, uh, as I say, there were, you know, professors, you know, basically, uh, they, they all wrote a letter, I think, or they were sort of petitioning the university to hire him because he seemed like a, a rising star and nobody wants to believe that they had, you know, essentially hired a, uh, some, a, a, a scientific fraudster who had ended up uh, killing, killing patients. It would have been terrible publicity for the, for the university. And there's lots of, you know, um, uh, Lots of stuff. Universities have, you know, not just their reputation to think about, but how their reputation then leads them to, you know, opening up special campuses in foreign countries, and you know they have all these kind of like, um, uh, uh, I guess, motives to, to 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 keep their reputation up, and um, and and then I think I think. Um, it just is a sort of unbelievable story. Like you almost can't believe that something as outrageous as that would 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 happen. And um, he was, you know, with a whole team of, of uh, collaborators, he was publishing these papers, um, and not just on humans too. I mean, he he also uh, it seems falsified some data on um, transplants in mice as well. So it was you know it wasn't just the human papers. It was it was it was his entire kind of output was 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 uh, was. Kind of touched by this by this uh, uh, con man style fraud that he was doing, Um, and the universities I think just didn't want to believe that something like that could could happen. And I think it it speaks to something that we all a problem we all have, which is in science we don't want to believe that scientists are doing something wrong. As I say, we we think that scientists are in it to kind of help people make discoveries and so on, and um, and it takes a a, a, you know quite a a leap to believe that actually they're you know deliberately falsifying results. I think you know as a scientist. I have a kind of, you know, in the back of my mind, fear of this scenario that happens where your collaborator that you've been working with for years, um, it turns out to have been falsifying data in in papers that have your name on them. You know, this happens happens quite a lot. And um, it's this terrible betrayal. And so I think we all just um, have a kind of see no evil thing where we just don't want to believe that something like that is happening.
0: Well, that has recently happened to a friend of mine whose supervisor has had papers retracted. And mm. um, and as a result, his own career has basically gone belly up. Huh. Um, yeah. And he wasn't involved in the fraudulent research directly at all.
1: Well, this is the thing is that is that you can... It, it happens both ways. It happens, you know, supervisors or you know, senior academics have produced fake data and given it to all their PhD students. So their PhDs are full of, you know, false, false information. Uh, or sometimes as a senior academic you get someone you know a junior academic working in your team who's falsifying data and it kind of ruins your lab's reputation for that for that reason and so um it, it, yeah it's it's just a, a terrible thing and there's a current case happening right now in um, behavioral ecology i don't know if this is maybe the, the 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 same case that you're talking about but um again i won't mention the guy's name because he's uh the guy who's yeah. accused of fraud yeah. is now getting involved in lots of legal action against people who have accused him but um he essentially gave data sets to um to all these people that were you know eventually would become his collaborators and said, "Look, I've got this perfect data set that tests your uh, hypothesis that you're interested in and um, and then uh, it turned out that, of course, well, something was very wrong with the data set. either it was fraudulent or there was some terrible grievous error in it. Um, and uh, you know, these papers are now being retracted and corrected right left and center.
0: Yeah, uh, I, so one of the, pro- one of the problems, I guess, um, this maybe brings us on to the next thing, which is one of the problems is that you are rewarded for, um, publishing papers that have nice, neat, positive, uh, or preferably dramatic or sort of interesting results. Um, and that really, you're really incentivized to to find a positive result and i i think you say somewhere that there's just an extraordinary proportion of published scientific papers show positive results it's as if every scientist is making a huge breakthrough um constantly
1: yeah absolutely there's there's um, there there's been you know some research on this where they've shown that um that uh no uh, you, know, you would not necessarily expect it to be 50-50 that you know every other paper you know, finds, a, finds a null result. You'd expect it to be a bit more than that because, of course, scientists are building on what previous researchers have done and building on theories and hypotheses that are educated guesses and so on. So you wouldn't expect it to be a, a coin toss every single time you um, you do an experiment or a study. But you wouldn't necessarily expect it to be like it is in psychology, where the standard literature in psychology, something like 94% or something of of papers report... Uh, having found support for their first hypothesis. That is, they find a positive result. And um, I don't think that seems like a, you know, a realistic number. If you think about what science should look like, where, you know, you've got blind alleys, you've got uh, uh, great ideas that just don't don't go anywhere. You've got um, mistakes. You've got, uh, you know, even even when uh, a finding is real, you do occasionally expect to find a null result relating to it because that's just how numbers work. And so, um, you, you know, the literature should not look like this. The literature should not look as, you know, um, uh, as positive as this. Uh, But as you say, one of the reasons for that seems to be, um, and that's kind of one of the arguments in my book is, is that scientists are incentivized to come up with positive results, Um, not just by the system, but also kind of by their own, by their own psychology, right? We all would prefer in most cases to find something rather than not. Um, We'd all prefer in some cases, in most cases to, to have, you know say we're doing research on an, on an illness we want to find out new facts about that illness we want to find out new treatments that might help we want to find out new um you know parts of human physiology or whatever that might affect that illness we want to find positive results rather than oh you know my hypothesis was wrong you can see how that would be a psychological urge but that psychological urge is is kind of instantiated in the ways that journals work in the way that scientific journals um, uh, uh, choose which papers to publish. And that's the fundamental problem, right? It's that scientific journals, where you know the output for, for all uh, the, the literature that we read, the scientific studies that we read, are making the decision to publish a paper not necessarily on how good the experiment is and how well-designed it is and how clear it, clearly it answers and addresses the question. Um, they're making the decision to publish it, in, to some extent at least, on the basis of what the actual result is. Um and you can see why they would then be interested in publishing things which appear at least to be making a big advance um, and leaving in the dust, leaving behind all the research that kind of shows, well, maybe this is a bit ambiguous, or this is definitely not the case, or this is just a really boring result that that gets us back to what we, you know, the status quo before we tried this experiment. You can see why all that less exciting stuff would would get left behind. Um and what we would eventually then see in the journals is you know, this rose-tinted view of, of of positive results all the time, and that you know is a kind of vicious circle because if that's what the journals are deciding, then scientists know that they internalize that, and they're less likely to even submit their negative or null or ambiguous results for publication to the journals. They're much more likely to say, "Well, we'll just," um, as as you know, as the phrase goes, "We'll just file drawer that study. We'll just put it in the file drawer uh, and forget about it. And move on to the next thing." And this is what's been called publication bias and it has a real kind of deranging effect on you know the scientific literature as we as we see it. Um, of course, what we want is the scientific literature to be a record of all the research that's been done and which, which studies are, are uh, you know are showing positive results and which are showing negative results. But what actually we see is just the ones that the journals or the scientists have decided to publish, which is a quite different thing
0: you actually um had a so at the beginning of your book you recite a story about how you and your colleagues um try to replicate this rather startling study which mm. seemed to show that people had e s p um that they could that they could predict uh which words they were going to see in a in a test yeah um,
1: it's a very strange paper it came out in two thousand and eleven uh in psychology in a in a very mainstream well respected Psychology Journal, um, and it was uh, yeah, it was um, it was about ESP. It was about doing a te- doing a little memory test. So you're shown a bunch of words, and then you have to just remember how many many as as many as you can. Um, and then after that, you um, you see half the words again. The computer randomly selects half the words again, shows you them, and then that's the end of the experiment. And what was claimed in this paper was a parapsychological effect um so that is kind of a psychic effect where um the the words that the, the people were about to see were remembered better so um the way i kind of put this in the book to try and i mean it's kind of a mind blowing thing the way i kind of put this in the book is you it's almost like you study for an exam and then you sit the exam and then after that you go home and study more and that studying that you've done after the exam somehow you know winds its way back in time to help you on the exam you know, of just the stuff that you studied after the exam. So it's kind of a, you know, it's one of those papers where you,
0: it wouldn't, it wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be
1: fantastic? (laughs) Wouldn't it be a wonderful world if that was true? Um, uh, Which is the case for so many of these, of these findings, you know, Um, uh, wouldn't it be a wonderful world if we could transplant, uh, you know, windpipes with stem cells and they would, you know, artificial windpipes and they would work and, you uh, you know, help treat people. Wouldn't it be fantastic? But unfortunately, doesn't seem to be the case. And it doesn't seem to be the case for this psychic study, because what we did was we ran the same experiment again and found no such results. And, you know, I'm I'm kind of skimming over a massive debate here in, in parapsychology, the whole subject of parapsychology um, is extremely contentious and full of believers and skeptics and so on. So, I mean, that's possibly a whole other podcast um, for a whole other day, but um, we didn't find those results. And Regardless of whether the, the actual psychic result is true or not, you know, we ran the same study again. We found no results, right? And we sent it to the same journal. And that journal told us, sorry, we're not interested in publishing replication studies. Whether they're positive or negative, we don't publish. We have a policy that we don't publish replication studies. So what they were telling us was they published the original exciting finding, but they were not interested in anyone else. Just running that experiment again and checking whether it's whether you know they could an independent set of uh, uh, studies and independent labs could find the same result, and I think this tells us something quite sad about the way that the scientific system is structured, um, which is that you know journals are, as I was saying, you know interested in exciting, flashy, positive uh, uh, findings that that appear to um, that appear to advance the scientific. Uh, 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 understanding of some of some question, but then when someone else comes along and says, "Well, I just did the same thing just to check," they they said, "No, no, we want you to do something new. We want you to move on to the next thing." There's no, you know, going back and just and just uh, consolidating what we know. It's all a matter of just moving on to the next thing, the next thing. This kind of neophilia, as I uh, uh, describe it in the book, where we're obsessed with new, exciting things, as if we were you know, in the press, writing newspapers. And that's not what we're about. You know, at least, you know, the the news is supposed to be new, exciting stuff. um, You know, man bites dog type stories. But the scientific literature is not supposed to be about that, right? The the scientific literature is supposed to be a a kind of sober recitation of all the stuff that scientists have done. But unfortunately, it it isn't like that.
0: Um, I want to to move on to a couple of other effects that... Um, tend to falsify science. And one, I think, which um, might require a little explanation because uh, many of my listeners don't have a scientific background. Mm -hmm. Of course, I definitely don't have a scientific background, um, which is pee hacking. And I think Brian Wansick, the now disgraced nutritionist, might be a good example of that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so... Uh, I, I
0: feel so sad about. I know I kind watching. of I kind
1: of view him as a sort of a tragic a tragic figure, <laughs> um, because I I sort of although he was accused of you know scientific misconduct by his university and he lost his job, I almost think he just didn't quite get it. Like I I almost think he didn't quite realise what he was doing was quite so bad. And 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 the reason I say that is so he's a well known uh, um, he's a psychologist actually you know he's of, of, a food psychologist, and um, so he was all about trying to get people to. You know, change the way that they think uh, about food, and thus you know, uh, eat the diet that they would prefer so he to had, eat.
0: He's the one who had the famous experiment where he uh, had a bottomless soup bowl. That's right. Yeah, he was tube and a, Yeah, it, he, it, he,
1: yes, he, he won on. the he won the the Ig Nobel Prize, which is the kind of fun Nobel Prize that uh, for for findings. I think the quote is that make first make you laugh and then make you think. And um, he, uh, yeah, he had a sort of tube under the table, and it would always refill the soup. And the the participants who were sitting eating the soup apparently didn't notice, and they ate much more when the soup bowl was refilling. And I'm not really sure what that's supposed to show, but it's certainly you know amusing. And uh, I, 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 to, to be honest, when you read the description of the experiment in the in the study where where this was you know this was published, <laughs> it is a bit like I can't really imagine saying they not noticing that the bowl was filling up, you know, or not thinking that the whole thing was a bit weird, like. Don't touch the bowl. You're not allowed to pick the bowl up. Now, just eat the soup. You're not allowed to touch it. You know, did, did, did you know? Were they maybe just kind of playing along, which I think is probably the case in quite a lot of, um, you know, psychology I think in research. Many
0: many psych um, experiments. Yeah. That's the case. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of psych experiments which I feel. They sound as though they were done by Darren Brown, yeah, <laughs> um.
1: well, yeah, well, yeah, it's kind of a reciprocal thing almost with Darren Brown because there was a period where loads of psychology research was doing his kind of thing, which was like I um put up a poster in the street and you walked past it this morning and it had a phrase on it, which has now affected your psychology. Like that sounds, you know, it sounds Neuro-linguistic a
0: Neuro-linguistic program, Right,
1: right, right. It sounds a bit kind of, um, you know, it's all fun when he's doing it. But th- there was very similar research being published in mainstream social psychology journals. Um, for years, there was a big fad of this sort of priming research where you would prime people with a, with a phrase or a word or a, a, an idiom or a metaphor of some kind. And it would apparently have this- this drastic effect on their on their behavior um anyway uh, uh, but the Wansing thing is um i'm not sure if he did any like uh, that, of that sort of linguistic sort of priming research uh i mean maybe i'm misremembering but the, the the stuff that he's kind of really well known for is that soup bowl one and also lots of research on them um, and again this is very very well known everyone knows this even if they don't know his name um they know the thing about if you take a bigger plate to the buffet you're kind of subconsciously tricking yourself into putting more stuff on the plates. And so you'll eat more when it's on a, on a, on a you know, all this, all this kind of stuff, all this kind of research on uh, mm-hmm. little things like that. And he, you know, he published a set of studies. The thing that really brought him down was he published a set of studies on, um, in an Italian restaurant in New York, uh, where it was kind of, um, essentially they collected a big data set, right? They collected loads of data on how much people were eating, who they were sitting with, um uh you know how much they tipped loads of data and then he essentially just dredged through those data to find some results right so uh let's come up with a hypothesis um maybe men eat more when they're with another man than they are with a, when they're with a woman right there's a hypothesis and you know this data set that he collected of lots of customers in this Italian restaurant could apparently test that right so he wrote this blog post on his website saying Uh, one of my students uh was really reluctant to dig through the 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 the, the data and just find any old thing but you know my other uh grad student and he describes her as the grad student who never said no um she was really excited which is yeah again like shows his kind of lack of like awareness of how he sounds of how he's coming across you know um but but anyway he said you know she was delighted to you know, trawl through the data, and and if this hypothesis didn't work, she would go away and test it a slightly different way, and test it a slightly different way, and test it a slightly different way, and then we found something, and then we would send that off for publication. And we've got, I think there were four papers that they published on the basis of this pizza or Italian restaurant related data. And um, he wrote this blog post saying that, and lots of people in the in the um, in the comments, other scientists started popping up and saying. Uh, Dr. Wansing, do you not think it's a bit, uh, you know, a bit odd to not have a hypothesis at all and just stroll through the data until you find something and then just publish it? You know, given that we know that data is really noisy, right, and you can often fool yourself into thinking that something's there when it isn't, like you know, the face on Mars or shapes in a cloud or whatever. And it turns out that, and this is getting back to your question of p-hacking, it turns out that the the statistical tools that we use to to analyze data and to and to find signal in noise, and one of the things we get out of that is a is a p value, which is this thing we want we want this p value to be really low um, because it tells us that if there was nothing happening in our, in our data, it tells us the likelihood of uh, of, of us finding results that that uh, that look like the ones we've got. So basically, we want that to be really low. Like we want us to, or, or we want not to be fooled by the data into thinking that something's there when it isn't. Right? Can,
0: can I just can I just. Um... Paraphrase that yeah. to make sure that I have. Yeah, it's a notoriously it tricky concept, it.
1: the p value. Yeah.
0: So the p value is. It is um, the likelihood that you could have found the same results completely by chance. So
1: well, it's uh, th- so this is where statisticians will will jump on you. And uh, I, I, was, <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, I took ages to phrase things as as accurately as I possibly could in the book. And and, and I'm sorry, you know, I should say, I should say, no, no. I, I was about to say, and I still get jumped on by people saying, well, you didn't quite say this, you didn't quite say. This. Uh, and and you know, in the book, I, I reference a study where I think eighty nine percent of introductory psychology textbooks. Uh, in their statistics sections, get the definition of the p-value wrong. So, like nobody knows what this, this thing is, right? And yet, scientists are using it every single day, constantly, and it's really important. So, it's okay, really just terrifying. Give me the
0: correct, well, the correct definition. correct. Well,
1: I mean, the, the the correct definition. I would have to like quote the American Statistical Association's special thing. But here's here's how I define it: If the null hypothesis is true, right, and the null hypothesis is there's nothing happening in this data, right? There's mm-hmm. there's the pill we've tested is no different from placebo. Uh, there's no correlation between variable A and variable B. Uh, what you know, whatever whatever hypothesis you're testing, imagine there's that the, the, the null hypothesis is that you're you're wrong and that there's nothing happening, right? So the pill doesn't work. In the case where where that is true, that there really is nothing happening, how likely is it that you would get the results that you got, or or, or results that look even more extreme or uh, more more like your hypothesis? And and obviously, you want that to be low you want that to be like uh, uh, as low as possible because you want it to be unlikely that the um, in in the case where there's actually nothing happening it looks like you found something right so 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 that's what you um that's what the p value is telling you so so scientists are desperate to get their p values as low as possible and um, you know in the early 20th century uh the kind of agreement was made was by Ronald Fisher the statistician and uh, and lots of other things as well including Somewhat unpleasant things, uh, like eugenicist, and so on. But um, but he's a, you know a, a statistician, and he left us with this idea that it should be lower than five percent, right? So p-value should be zero point zero five or lower for something to be, and this is the, the phrase that he came up with, statistically significant. So you see this a lot in the news when you're reading about scientific. Uh, uh, findings, that they're statistically significant or not statistically significant, or, you know, the effect of hydroxychloroquine on COVID-19 is not statistically significant, <laughs> or it is, uh, you know, whatever. So you, you hear this phrase a lot. And and I think you're hearing it increasingly now. You, um, you hear it in the news, you know, because obviously everyone's talking about scientific studies now with, with COVID-19. Um, and what that means is that the scientists have run a statistical test, calculated a p-value, and that p-value is less than 0.05, meaning that in a world where the null hypothesis is true, you would only have a 5% or lower chance of, um, of finding the results that you found. Right, So that's what the p-value is telling us. And it's a bit of a weird like convoluted explanation, but unfortunately that's just how it is. That's just how this mm-hmm. particular branch of statistics works.
0: I think people, I mean, lay people often confuse us with the effect size. Yes. So statistically significant doesn't mean there's a large effect. No. Um, it just means that whatever effect you found has a low probability of being there by chance.
1: Yeah, it has a low probability of being there if the null hypothesis is true. If the null
0: hypothesis is true. And, the hypothesis and, and, yeah, is true. but
1: you're absolutely, I mean, that's a, such a crucial point is to, is to say that that p-value is often affected by how big the sample is. So if you have a, a really, really large sample size, so you're doing research in like, so there's a, there's a database in the UK called the UK Biobank, which has half a million people in it you can find loads of really low p-values in that because the sample size is really big. So um, it's affected by how big the sample size is, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the effect you found is important. And this is the the kind of weird problem with the phrase statistically significant, which Ronald Fisher, back when he was talking about this in the 1920s, I think, um, significant was kind of had a slightly different meaning from how it does now. It kind of means that this signifies something rather than it's, you know, significant or important. Um, and so it's a subtle distinction, but it's, but it's one that has, I think, kind of driven people off, or, you know, on the wrong track. When scientists, you know, th- say, I have found a statistically significant result, they, the scientists, and the people listening to them think, oh, wow, this must be important. But actually, all they mean is that, that, that it, it, you know, it's... it's um, it's It's unlikely to have been to have looked like that if the null hypothesis was true, and that doesn't mean the same as it has a large effect size, as you say. so you could have a drug that really you know um, instantly as soon as you take it, all your headache symptoms are gone, right and that would be a big effect size that would be you know um, uh, maybe you had a really serious migraine or something and you take the drug and the effect the effect size is so big that it just nullifies the pain instantly so that would be a big effect size. but you could also have a drug where you have a tiny effect on the effect size. Uh, you have a tiny effect on the headache. I should say. It, you know, it improves things a little bit, and it does that reliably. Does that? You know, um, the the drug that really does work. It's not just due to chance or or anything like that. The drug really does work. And in that case, you would see perhaps you would have a statistically significant p value, but you wouldn't have a, a very large effect. So, differentiating these things is really important. Um, and I think. One of the problems that I talk about in the book is that scientists make their decisions on what is true on the basis of having calculated a p-value. Um, so they say if the p-value is less than 0.05, then suddenly the finding is real. And if the p-value is above 0.05, then, ah, oh, well, forget about it. We can't publish that. And then, by the way, this fits into our discussion of publication bias, because, of course, what journals are looking for when they when we're talking about positive results, like what is a positive result? Well, for the majority of scientists, a positive result is p is less than 0.05.
0: So what so what Wansick was doing was he was um he didn't have a high, he wasn't testing a hypothesis he didn't say okay my hypothesis is x um what does the data show he was looking at the data and trying to find a hypothesis uh that that would fit the data and the more kind of hypotheses you um uh you test against the data um the more likely it is that you will find some something by chance
1: yeah absolutely so the p-value although it's all about trying to detect signal and noise the p-value breaks down if you just keep uh, keep calculating more and more and more p-values um so the the assumptions of the p-value are that it's kind of an independent test that you're just you're just calculating one p-value and and seeing if it's less than 0.05 and, and that's it that's kind of the assumption that you know, you have to kind of, you you have to kind of fulfill to make the p-value work the way we want it to work. But unfortunately, what people are normally doing is that they're testing lots and lots of different hypotheses. Um, And that's what Wansink was doing was he was, you know, dredging through this pizza restaurant data set and finding loads of different hypotheses, uh, thinking of loads of different hypotheses, testing them some of them came out with p values above 0.05 some of them came out with p values less than that, that um cr- crucial sacred number um and uh it, it ended up being that he um that, that you know they would publish the ones that had the 0.05 um and, and 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 the crucial thing is that he would write them up as if they had had a hypothesis all along that this was going to be the case right so this is um what's been called harking h a r k ing so so um Hypothesizing after the results are known, um, which is <laughs> something which unfortunately loads of scientists, maybe even a majority of scientists, do. Which is that they don't really set out their hypotheses clearly beforehand. They kind of vaguely have an idea of what they might do, then they kind of analyze the data, and then they they find what the data shows, and then they go, "Well, let's write it up as if we had you know a hypothesis uh, uh, like that." And this is what's been called p hacking because you're trying to get your data below that. P of less than 0.05, right? And trying mm. to get that below that criterion. And you can do that in the way of just casting through your data and just just finding any old thing like one thing was doing. Or you can actually manipulate the data in sometimes you know, non-deliberate, unconscious ways, but you can do things like, well, you know, that that person was kind of looking out the window. During the experiment, so we'll just drop their data and see what happens. So we'll run the run the the p value again and see if it's less than zero point zero five. Oh, it is. All right, well we'll just stop there and we'll publish that. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know that petri dish. I'm sure that looked a bit dirty. Uh, you know compared to the other ones. Uh, <laughs> let's chuck that one out. You know, uh, or, or mm-hmm. let, let's. I've just thought of a, a new type of statistical test that we'll use, uh, and we'll just see if that gets a p value, and we'll publish that <laughs> one. You know, so scientists right. are doing all this stuff. They're busily doing all these different things with their data, different tests, different sample sizes, different all sorts of stuff. And then they're just publishing the ones that look like they have this you know, this this P is less than 0.05. And what we don't see, it's like, it's like publication bias in miniature, right? It's like publication bias on the level of an individual paper. Because what we don't mm. see is mm. all the stuff that didn't work. We see all the stuff that worked and so not the stuff that didn't work. So it's kind of there's like macro publication bias and then there's micro publication bias, which is the which is the p-hacking stuff that goes on. And again, it has a really bad effect on the literature. It has a really uh, uh, you know, it really knocks us off track in in you know what we're supposed to have, which is a scientific literature that that tells the the truth about what's been done, that is an accurate representation of the studies and so on. And what you can see here is that it's not an accurate representation. Um, uh, and, and in fact, you know, various things followed Brian Wansink's blog, uh, blog post, and he eventually some emails of his leaked to BuzzFeed News. And in one of the emails, he explicitly says to his co-authors. Let's try. Bit. I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed that the p-value is, is over 0.05. Let's see if we can get that any lower. And uh, that's, as I say in the book, something which is kind of astonishing for a scientist to say, which is, you know, can you just go back and manipulate the data to make it look better? <laughs> but I think that's what um, lots of scientists are implicitly saying, even if they don't right. just come out with it like he did.
0: Right, right. Um, I'm, I'm just double checking that I understand this correctly, because... I wonder if this is analogous. So I once um, came across a, a functional um, medicine practitioner. So a friend really um, strongly urged me to go, although I was very skeptical. And um, she, um, uh, t- to treat my, I had very extremely bad um, dysmenorrhea. And she said, oh, well, I think it's because, you know, you have your anemic. Um, And I was pretty sure this wasn't the case. But anyway, she did the test and I wasn't anemic. And she said, "Okay, now I'm going to run a whole bunch of other tests, like 60 other tests, and we'll see which value is outside of the normal range. Uh, And that will be the cause. So that feels like that kind of fishing expedition thing. You're just the whole universe is out there and surely you can find... Something that f- coincidentally fits your theory somewhere.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely. It sounds like a very similar, very very similar thing. You're you're fishing for uh, in, in a world where we know that data are noisy. That if you keep calculating p-values, they sort of break basically, and, and that you need to you need to correct them. You need to have a more conservative uh, standard for what you accept as, as evidence. With that, you know, uh, um, you need to conservative with a small c, obviously. Um, you need to have a you need to adjust your p-value threshold so it's not 0.05 anymore maybe it's 0.01 or 0.005 or, or something like that um, which would be a more you know you you would only accept uh things because you've because you've um you've basically increased your chances of finding a false positive result by doing lots and lots of tests you would then adjust your p-value threshold and, and and make it harder for something to be statistically significant, um, so you know the one percent threshold rather than the five percent threshold, say. So, um, and 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 you know, I think scientists and you know your uh, functional medicine person and whatever, I think they don't understand that the world is a really noisy place in terms of by, by which I mean you know the statistical noise, statistical fluctuations, and that it's really easy to convince yourself that you have found something when when really it, it, it isn't. And and you know, to go back to another. Um, thing I've mentioned that the whole idea of doing replication is right that you want to make sure that the finding that you've uh, discovered in your lab, you want to make sure that someone else in another lab can find the same thing and that you just didn't have a fluke finding. Um, you you want to ha- make sure that other people can 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 get the same thing. And if you if, if that's not the case, then it is much more likely that what you found was was you know was just by pure by pure luck.
0: Yeah, I, uh, you were saying in the book that very few. Replication studies are done, and uh, even in many cases, uh, if you try to reproduce the results from the data, if you have the complete data set, mm. then even then you find that the sums don't add up um, in a lot of experiments. So many things are just put out there and they're never kind of tested or verified.
1: Yeah, that's uh, uh, as bad as the replication failures are, and I think that's you know one of the main problems. Certainly, in in you know social sciences, uh, but also in medicine and various other places. As bad as they are, the reproduci- reproducibility failures, which uh, you know some people use those words interchangeably, replicability and reproducibility. But um, I think it's useful to have replication means when somebody else goes out and does the same experiment as you, but with new data, you know, new new people, new participants, new animals, new uh, particles, whatever it is, right, in a, in a totally different setup. Um, reproducibility is, as you said there, when you've actually got somebody's original data set that they did their, their research on and you can't find the same results in that data, which is astonishing when you think about it. It's like, you know, the, the, um, the, 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 the scientists have not described accurately in their paper what they've, what they've done. And I remember when I was an undergrad, we were told when you write up your scientific papers, you know, when you're doing your little dissertation projects or whatever, um, you write the method, the methodology section. In such a way that makes sure that other people can come along and do the same experiment as you did right and, and, and make sure that mm-hmm. someone can, 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 can actually just work out what you what you did. but in, in so many cases, first of all people can't even begin to do the replication because people have not described the experiment correctly. but secondly, they can't find the same results even if they've got the original data set um, and all that can mean is Something has gone wrong in the translation of the the, the, the analysis uh, to the scientific paper. Um, the, the paper uh, has typos in it. Uh, the paper doesn't accurately reflect what was done the the, um, the, the analysts took more twists and turns and maybe P hacking style twists and turns in the analysis uh, while they were while they were doing it, which they didn't report uh, in, in the paper. Um, they haven't produced their computer code for you to reproduce their, uh, analysis or something like that has gone wrong in the way that the analysis has, was done and, 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 and written up. Um, and so if you can't even get the results from exactly the same data set, you know, and that's in a large portion of cases in, 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 in many different fields, it's been found in, um, areas, not just like psychology, but also medical areas. And, um, seems to be a particular problem. I've seen quite a few stories in, um, AI, machine learning style research, which is obviously reliant on computer algorithms, computer codes. And it seems like those codes are not necessarily working. When other people try and get the same results, they're not getting the same thing. Um, And and all this really just undermines what you want to be able to do when you get a scientific paper. You want to be able to act on it in some way. You want to be able to either make a new policy or a new treatment or a new whatever it is, or you want to build the next scientific experiment off it. You want to, you know, say, well, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to maybe replicate this result and then extend it to some other scenario or some other set of patients or some other disease or whatever it is. Um, and it completely undermines that if you can neither reproduce nor replicate the results of the original experiment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, another another aspect of this is um, the low, low powered studies mm. and I came across this actually um I came across this very recently when I was reading Charles Murray's book um Human Diversity and I was live tweeting my reading of it and one of my friends who is a um an anthropologist was had was citing all of these places in Murray's book where he expressed great confidence uh, it was in the first section in about differences between men and women specific differences mm. like Um, women being better at seeing color than men Mm -hmm. Um, i can't remember what the exact examples were and my friend was showing in the footnotes the studies that he had used and they they all had really tiny numbers of people
1: yeah yeah
0: and the example you had was amy cuddy and the power posing thing which uh Talking of conservatives with a large C, I will be forever grateful to her for all the ridiculous, um, <laughs> yes. all the amusement I got from seeing the Tory party at their conference power posing. Doing the weird power posing. Yeah, I,
1: that, there's a, there's a, like, you take that to your university, you know, um, impact <laughs> officer and say I had an impact, you know, but, but it, it, in, in making UK politicians stand in a weird way. It's very strange, <laughs> very strange.
0: Um, because that was that was done in a really small number of of people. I can't remember what the number was. Forty two. Uh, Forty two. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was a it was a it was a massive big deal. This this uh, idea of power posing. Um, she uh, Amy Cuddy and a couple of her colleagues published this paper, and I think two thousand and thirteen was when they published the original paper. Um, and a couple of but, and it, the idea, by the way, was that if you stand in a um, a particular way uh in an open sort of confident posture like the uh, the Tory politicians were doing in in in, in at the conference this is kind of during the kind of Theresa May era they were kind of into this mm-hmm. um, um uh, if you stand in that way it will make you feel more powerful it will increase your levels of um certain hormones like testosterone and decrease your stress hormone cortisol uh it'll make you take more risks like it'll make you be you know uh, and so on and so it's the sort of thing that you should probably do before you have an interview you know go into the bathroom and stand in a in a posed way and especially the special posed way and definitely don't slouch or slump over because that'll be that'll be bad and so it was this whole idea of like your bodily uh, uh um posture feeding back to your psychological um, uh, attributes and you know you can make yourself really successful and it was kind of marketed to women in a way of like you know you can um, you know increase women's representation in the workforce by uh, you know at higher levels of the workforce by acing that interview by doing a power pose beforehand it was kind of in this kind of really simplistic sort of um, sort of uh, th- this really simplistic way um, and uh, this had a best selling book presence it's called by amy cuddy and the the second most watched uh, ted talk of all time millions and millions and millions tens of millions of views on this ted talk uh, about purposing. and then a couple of years uh, along the line another lab couldn't replicate the finding several other labs have failed to replicate the finding amy cuddy still stands by it but um but the really interesting thing that came out of it was that the first author of the paper, uh, uh, Dana Carney, who is a psychologist at um, Berkeley, I think, in California, she came out and said, look, we did this study in 2013. At the time, we thought it was fine, but now I don't believe in this anymore. And what she basically described was p-hacking. She described that the that the study was, you know, that they tried different statistical tests, that they dropped people out when they, you know, uh, they dropped people out inconsistently across different things, that they they ran all sorts of analyses and then only published the ones that were statistically significant and so on. So you wouldn't expect this to this to um to to replicate. But in the context of what we're talking about now, the big factor that, that she kind of emphasized in that, and you can see plain as day if you look at the original paper, is that it was only done on 42 people. Um, and in a world where we don't have huge effects all the time, right? So a huge effect in statistically would be something like someone drops a bowling ball on your head like and you will like that will always have an, a massive effect on people's psychology they'll get concussed they'll be unable to do things they'll probably be you know have really serious brain damage whatever so so like a massive effect like that compare that to something like standing for a few minutes in a different way like what sort of effect would you expect that to have on someone's psychology if it has an effect mm-hmm. at all mm-hmm. and the effect would be a really small one. Now it might be real, and this goes back to our discussion of statistically significant versus um, versus effect size, and I think that's uh, you know set up really nicely because it, it illustrates this perfectly. Which is like you might have a statistically significant but small um, effect, which is perfectly reasonable. It still might be something people might want to do, but I'm not sure you could write that up as if it was a you know life changing thing like like it was written up in that book um, by Amy Cuddy so that's yeah. one thing yeah. but but also running a small study to find a small effect is a really bad idea uh, uh, as well because um uh, the t- the concept of statistical power which is a you know um another another kind of statistical thing which kind of adds on top of the knowledge about p values and so on um It's that essentially to find small effects, you need large studies. Um, You need um, it's almost like the power refers to almost like the power of a telescope, Um, and you know the more powerful your telescope, the more uh, the smaller things that you'll be able to see in the sky when you when you when you look up. Um, And in a small study, the only effects that you're going to reliably be able to find are really big ones. And so there's this kind of weird, quite wicked logic about this because. What that means is that when people do a tiny study with 42 people in it or 30 people or 20 people or whatever, as was for a long period, the kind of standard effect size in in lots of kind of social psychology experiments, um, when people do a study like that, if they do find an effect, it's likely to be a fluke. It's likely to be this large, exaggerated effect because they had no chance of finding a small effect in the first place.
0: And that's because if they found a small effect because they had such a small group of subjects, that effect it wouldn't be under the p-value threshold. Right, exactly. Precisely, precisely. Could have happened with a very small number of people. It could have happened by chance. Yeah. So, for example, what proportion of people um, have the star sign Aries? If I only have three people in my experiment, then um, the likelihood that all three of them by chance are have Aries as a star sign is quite high. Right, right,
1: um, and, and 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 because. Because there's there's not that many ways for that to be, but like if you if you imagine something like um, uh, I think well the example I give in the book is height, right? Height differences between men and women. We know that's a really big effect um, um, uh, that that you know that men are taller than women on average. But um, if you only had a tiny number of participants in your experiment, it is possible that you might just have quite a few really tall women and quite a few really tall, uh, sorry, really short men. And so you might make a mistake there and you might not be able to find that, that real effect. But if you have a thousand people in your experiment, 500 from each sex, you're definitely going to find it because it's very unlikely that you'd get loads and loads, you get 500 really tall women and 500 really short men. You're going to get, you know, a a better um, ability to detect the effect there. Um, And that's a really big effect. But if you think about a small effect of something, you know, like a, like a pill, a new pill that you're designing for I know for COVID nineteen or something, uh, you know, has a small effect on the symptoms. You're going to need an awful lot of people in your experiment in order to detect that small effect and and kind of and kind of um, uh, you know spot that signal above all the noise that happens when you have you know um, uh, lots of people's data in your experiment. So what you're doing when you run a tiny experiment is, first of all, you're missing out real effects that are small that might exist. So you're going to make a you're going to make a false negative error there. But also, mm. when you do find an effect, um, it's more likely that that was um, a big you know, fluke effect size that when someone else collects another data set, they're going to be unable to find. So lots of different fields have very, very small experiments in general. And um, this happens mm. very commonly in areas mm, like neuroscience. I
0: was, yes, I was married to a neuroscientist. Right. And as I was reading that chapter, I was waiting for you to mention this, <laughs> and, and, and indeed you did. Um, so um, time in the MRI machine is extremely expensive. Exactly. And often um, often they were studying very rare conditions and very rare phenomena. Um, so the subject group would be tiny. Yep. Um, and then the effect sizes were often like 2% more blood flow to some region of the brain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and altogether, that makes <laughs> for, well... Um, the critics used to call it neuro disney
1: <laughs> oh i haven't heard that before that's great oh, that's a good one um yeah no you're you're quite right and and you know there's a there's a good reason if not a kind of ex, you know it's, it's it's an explanation if not a kind of um uh, a kind of actual excuse or, or good good reason um uh, or good um, um exculpatory type reason um is that it's really expensive. It's really expensive to run an MRI uh, experiment. It's really expensive to get rats and mice and make them run around mazes and all that sort of stuff. It's really, really expensive to keep for their upkeep and all that. So that's why it feels like neuroscience and in lots of other areas too, but you know, neuroscience is a, is a good example. The studies are far too small. So the sorts of you know numbers of rats you would want in your experiment to detect the average sort of effect that we would re- realistically expect in a neuroscience experiment is in the hundreds. But the average mm. number of, of rats that they actually have in neuroscience experiments is about 20 or something. You know? So, so um, it, the, the, the experiments that are being done are just not adequate to test the hypotheses. And in fact, it's not, even that, it's not just that you know, they're not giving us as much information as we need. It's that they're actively putting us off. They're actively uh, uh, misleading us by um, by you know being more likely to to turn up these <clears throat> statistical fluctuations and flukes um, if they do find anything at all, um, and then the really tragic thing about this is that other researchers come along and see that oh this this tiny experiment has found this big effect isn't that amazing I'll just run a tiny experiment as well so I'll do my next experiment and it'll be a small one and then the next person comes along and does a small one too and small and and, and so you get this kind of domino effect where everyone is encouraged to do low sample size research um uh, uh, by the fact that the original study was small and found this you know uh, in the book I say it's like a moth sitting on a light bulb like it, 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 the, the, in reality the effect is small but by fluke you found a you found a large one but it's not a replicable one it's just in your data set it looks like it's really big so um it, it, this has a really bad effect on all sorts of fields and you can get yourself into you know, so in, in genetics and behaviour genetics, we had the, the, the phase of doing research on candidate genes where people did basically research that was underpowered. It was far too small on um, on on uh, different genes that were related to psychiatric outcomes or things like uh, IQ or... Uh, um, oh,
0: well, I remember the gene for homosexuality. Right. I think right. that was way back in like the 90s. Yeah, um,
1: yeah the gene for some hugely complex <laughs> behaviour. There was a point where geneticists thought they were making progress on finding the gene or the the handful of genes that really explained, you know, most of the variation in people's abilities or people's traits or people's sexuality or whatever it is. And we now know that that was essentially all uh, uh, an illusion. Um, it was an illusion caused by people doing underpowered, low sample research and thinking that they found big effects when in fact they hadn't. Um, and now we know that you know those types of complex traits, whether it's intelligence, whether it's sexuality, whatever, are to the extent that they're related to genetics, are um, are related to many tens of thousands of different genes that all have a tiny, tiny, tiny effect. So, um, and, and you know, to just kind of wrap this this power uh, uh, thing back in, when you're doing small studies with you know 50 people in there or something, there was no way you were ever going to find the, those tiny minuscule infinitesimal effects of genes. You were never going to find that. And so anything that you did find was going to be this large, unrealistic, you know, fluke effect. So um, we now know better in genetics and things have got somewhat better. I mean, it's still obviously very complicated and and, and very controversial and so on. And there's all sorts of arguments going on there. And that's again, a whole other podcast, but we've moved away in genetics from the, the candidate gene methodology, which produced an entire field of research uh, which was which was essentially an illusion, which is a really scary thought.
0: Stuart, there's one thing that you don't mention about these small effect sizes, or I think you don't really mention it, which is that. Um, so it is a waste. I mean, it wastes people's time and money. And yeah. with things like power posing, it's quite harmless. Yes, it's quite okay to go to the toilet and stand with your <laughs> sure, legs apart sure, yeah. or whatever. Um, but. There, there are in medical research in particular. There are um, quite large ethical um, concerns, and I think uh, before this podcast comes out, because I've already uh, recorded this, mm. um, I think that people will have, or those who listen regularly, will have heard a podcast with Azra Raza, the oncologist and cancer researcher, and in cancer research. Tiny, tiny um, effect sizes are just blown up as these enormous um, breakthroughs, things that will give like 8% of patients one more month of life. Mm-hmm. And people are just, first of all, spending their life savings and their entire family's life savings yeah. on these treatments, and then also spending that, even if they have the additional month of life, Spending that month puking their guts out in hospital, sure um so it's just the kind of the way in which these results are spun, and as you put it very clearly in the book itself, not necessarily spun by journalists but spun by the scientists themselves yeah. um is uh is actually having uh very bad effects on people's lives and where where I saw this happening um was the the tiny little um toe that I um I dipped into kind of research myself, or not research, but um what's the word? I guess journalistic research mm. on science when mm. I was writing about uh circumcision.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Um uh, with the help of Brian David Earp. And I um at one point I um so I just um there is a there is a probably a relative, um, um, there is a 1.4% less chance of getting HIV, heterosexually transmitted HIV as a man if you've been circumcised. So right. the, figure that the figure that they're giving or the figure you get if you go and um, do the calculations with the research, which Brian has done is 1.4 something even assuming the research is correct. Sure. But this is sold as we need to spend billions of dollars circumcising men in Africa in order to reduce the incidence of HIV. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that the the tiny the the really small um effect size is not mentioned at all. And at one point I asked somebody from the WHO we had this conversation on, on Twitter and I said, why don't you mention the fact that you're only talking about a 1.4% reduction in likelihood? And he said, if you wanted lots of men to get circumcised, would you quote that figure? <laughs> Which I just thought wow. was so extraordinary. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, wow,
1: well, the, um, the ends justify the means in that case. <laughs> so it's really amazing to see.
0: Um, but I think that... In cancer research, it's maybe more benevolent, or maybe it's more benevolent here as well. You really want something to work, yeah. And that's why I I um, bought both of Brian Wansick's books back in whenever it was when he published them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because I have a tendency towards fatness. So I'm really hoping that I was really hoping that one of his tips would work. That I could just get a smaller. Soup bowl, or, yeah, yeah, or yeah, take yeah. fewer yeah, items of the buffet, and I would start effortlessly losing weight, um, which didn't work at all.
1: Well, this is something which I, you know, I go into in the, the chapter on hype in the book about, you know, as you said there, it's not that scientists are innocently doing their research in this really high minded way, and then these bad journalists come along and, and 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 misrepresent it. It's that the scientists themselves are often um, writing press releases. To hype up their research beyond uh, where where it should really, you know, beyond what the data can actually show, um, and sometimes writing popular books uh, that misrepresent or or at least over overblow the, the the research.
0: And then also, it, even if you want to check the actual research, you go to the footnotes, and the footnotes refer to. A journal which which you don't have access to, and where yeah, you'd have yeah. to pay like forty bucks to download. But this, the I mean,
1: that's a yeah. I mean, that's a whole that's a whole other discussion about you know mm. who, who the, the the really bizarre scientific publication system where where um, you know the public often fund research through their tax tax money, and then they also pay scientists salaries through their tax money, and then they um they uh, the, the scientists f- work for free in terms of you know reviewing papers for the journals and so on, and they publish they publish the papers in journals for for profit companies, and then a member of the public is asked to pay again to uh, uh, access it themselves or pay again in their tax money uh, to allow universities to subscribe to the journals. So you're getting this like these all this money flowing from the taxpayer into the scientific journals where. Um, you know, the scientists themselves, except in the case of some, you know, editors who do get um, some form of um, uh, of payment, but in, in certainly in, in for peer reviewers, you don't get any money at all. So you're working for free, and all your taxpayer money is going on these on these uh, journals. So there's a bizarre case there. But you know. Um, that's, you know, and that's to read research, which by the way, it's not just books and press releases. The the papers themselves are often hyped up as well. They're written in this kind of spinning way where, you know, even if you've not been able to p-hack or publication bias yourself into finding um, only positive results in your paper, if you've got negative results. You can just write your paper up as if they were positive, right? You can just pretend that they're positive. You can massively underplay them in terms of the, you know, writing up your uh, a- analysis. Um, So at all the levels of, you know, where the actual experiments meet the write-up, whether it's the write-up in in the journals, in public, in books and so on, um, you've got opportunities for scientists to hype up their research and they take that opportunity and they run with it and they uh, uh, end up putting massively misleading statements into press releases, books, and the papers themselves all the time. And, um, you know, the whole system of science, the whole process that science is supposed to have the peer review uh, uh, system and so on obviously it's failing in terms of journals uh, you know the, the overblown statements made in journals but it doesn't operate at all in terms of you know popular books and press releases and so on so scientists can get away with much more and the unfortunate thing is that's where members of the public are reading about the research
0: right it's very hard to once something is out there it's very hard to put that genie back in the bottle as we see with yeah. andrew wakefield who is one of Quite. the most discredited scientists, and yet people are still citing that?
1: Um, Quite, uh, uh, and it's uh, actually I just I'm ready yet, but I just received uh, uh, the book, uh, the new book by Brian Deer, who was the investigative journalist that really um, uh, investigated and, and, and caught. Andrew Wakefield and his fraudulent research. Uh, it's called "The Doctor Who Fooled the World," and um, I'm looking forward to reading that. But you know, there's a there's a kind of brief version of that story in in my book as well, because I couldn't not talk about it. It's the worst scientific fraud uh, ever, probably in terms of its effects.
0: Uh, just just to remind people, this yeah. is the the guy who published the paper which allegedly found a link between the MMR vaccine and yeah. autism.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and it turned out that it wasn't just a. A mistake or a blind alley or something. It was fraudulent. Uh he falsified the medical records of the children in the experiment and claimed that they had symptoms of uh, that were associated with autism when in fact in some cases they didn't have those symptoms, in some cases those symptoms had appeared before they had the MMR vaccine, various things like that. And um, I'm looking forward to reading more details of that case in the in the in the book by Brian Deer. But um, but yeah, that uh, particular uh, you know it's particularly nightmarish because it spread out into the world um uh, the, the the panic that occurred when that article was published and it was published in the lancet again uh, you know a very highly respected medical journal um, and um that was the scientist himself you know falsifying results um and then you know the journalists just had to follow his lead basically and and uh, he was you know, strongly opposed to this combination MMR vaccine. It turned out there was financial reasons that he was, uh, 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 you know, going for that. He had a um, uh, he had um, patented some individual, you know, the M and the M and the R uh, rather than the combination vaccine, and so he, he looked like he could have stand to gain lots of money from this. So there was, you know, that's all described by Brian Deer, um, but that's the scientists themselves, and and you know, even in cases that are not fraudulent like that, like outright fake data. You do still find scientists, you know, hyping up their research, writing things as a, in ways that, that the data just can't support. I mean, there were there were twelve kids in that Wakefield paper, right? So even if it hadn't been fraudulent, it would have just been an interesting observation, something to be followed up in a, in a large, a much, much, much larger replication study. Um, it wouldn't be something to draw conclusions about and then do a big press conference like Andrew Wakefield did and so on. He was he was hyping up this these, these results, by the way. Since then, people have actually done those large studies and found there's no link between the MMR and, and, and autism. Um, but but um, you know, this is what scientists are doing all the time. They're taking their tiny little studies or their studies that are inconclusive or are just a, you know, a kind of brick in the overall wall and making them sound as if they are you know, these, these huge breakthroughs. And again, to go back to what we talked about right at the very start, this is the incentives. This, the, the incentives in science are to really hype up your research because the more you hype it, the more attention you get, the more opportunities you get, the more, uh, you know, grant money that you you, you, you might get, um, the more important you make your findings sound, uh, the more attention people will pay and the better you'll get on in your career.
0: Mm, mm. Um, so I, I just want to refer people. I don't want to talk about it right now because I spoke about it in a previous podcast episode. But um, if people are interested in some of the ways in which you can use statistics to hype up your um your, art, your findings in a misleading way. So not yeah. lying about the findings, but failing to mention the base rate or um, uh, not telling people that what you are looking at is relative risk reduction or risk increase yeah. rather than yeah. absolute. Um, I had a podcast on that with um, David Grimes, who's written a book called The Irrational Ape, which yes. has quite a lot of stuff about how statistics can be fraudulently used.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, I, I have some questions from, um, Twitter, which mm. I think Chris Kavanaugh has asked about 15 questions. So I, I, oh, well. I think I will, uh, he, Chris is a friend of mine. I think I will try and uh, ask uh, these uh, one. And mine. Hi, Chris. <laughs> Hello, Chris. Um, uh, yeah, I'm interested in this, which is after looking to, um, so Chris asked a few things about solutions, and I deliberately haven't asked you about solutions. You, uh, give a lot of really good suggestions for how to make things better in your book. But I don't want people to feel that they have heard a kind of summary of your book here in this podcast. So mm. I think we should keep that powder dry. <laughs> sure. Sure. If you want to find out what Stuart's solutions are and they are very ingenious, then you need to go to the book. And that is not hype. That is the truth. Well thank you. <laughs> um Anyway, Chris asks, and this is a question I have too. Um, I mean, every time I have sort of looked into the validity of science um, at all, and I don't have a scientific background, so I don't feel when I see a scientific finding, I don't feel qualified to know mm. um, how likely or otherwise it is. All I know is that I looked into the research on low-fat diets, and it was bad. <laughs> um, yeah, it's no I, read, I read a biography of Ansel Keys, and I think that the Keys seven countries study needs to be thrown out um, right. wholesale. And I looked into circumcision, and that was just terrible science and misrepresentation. Mm. Um, and now there's been also the replication crisis in psychology, and I, I've talked to Jesse Single, um about that. So... Uh-huh whenever i've looked into it it's it, uh, i've i've come away with this feeling of skepticism and it gives me a a huge sense of disorientation um i certainly don't believe in conspiracy theories alternative science or medicine or anything like that either but i just have this sense that i no longer know what to believe yeah. um and i think that chris chris's first question sort of addresses this he says after looking into all the fraud and misconduct, how has Stuart managed to avoid becoming disillusioned with all of science and dismissing all experts?
1: It's a very good question. And and I think Yes yeah, lots of things to say about that. I mean the first one is
0: Um and I guess sorry, can I just yeah. say there's a kind of a his second question sort of um continues on from this because he says, yeah. How concerned are you that your book could serve as a weapon for pseudoscientists? And science yeah. denialists. Yeah,
1: well, that's actually. I was about to say. You know, the first thing to say is I would not want anyone to come away from reading the book uh, and and think, oh, well, we can just chuck out science then, and I'll just be an anti-vaxer if I want, or I'll be a creationist if I want, or whatever it is. Um, the point of the book is that everyone needs to raise their standards in terms of what evidence they accept, and you know. W- w- And, and, you know, part of that is that this kind of rather uneasy thing about learning that actually scientists have much lower standards than we would want for the stuff that they publish in their journals and that that gets into this, you know, into the scientific record. Um, But everyone needs to raise their standards. And my feeling is if you raise your standards for research on things like, you know, anti-vax or creationism or whatever it is, then you would, there wouldn't be much left uh you know uh, you know as a as a scientific basis for those kind of beliefs but i think also it it's um it really is um a strong argument if there are people criticizing science and and who think that there's some sort of uh, um conspiracy in science or conspiracy of, 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 of silence, of, of, of you know scientists who know that there's something really wrong and they they, they won't uh, reveal it to the public or whatever. That's all the more reason for us to get our house in order. It's all the more reason for us to be as open and transparent about our, uh, uh, our science, to publish our data, to publish our plans, and to avoid all the, the sorts of mistakes that we've talked about, the p-hacking and the publication bias and all that. Publish our null results. You know, stop making science look as if it's this amazingly pristine thing, because the problem that you get when you make it look like a pristine thing is that eventually someone will find an a, an an issue with a paper, and there always are every single paper out there is flawed in some way um uh, that's just because of the nature of reality you know you're never going to be able to do a perfect study, so someone's going to find some problem and then they're going to blow it out of proportion and say, "Aha, now I've shown that science is is actually not like." Uh, you know, like, like um, it's portrayed to be. And thus I have some basis for my weird belief about how vaccines don't work or or, or whatever it is. So um, I think we, if we're completely open, um, like I'm trying to be in the book, I'm trying to give people a, a, a view of how science really works and say, look, there are all these mistakes, there are all these errors, there are all these, these biases, and there are all these um, uh, uh, essentially sometimes frauds get through and, and, and so on that's the warts and all picture of science. We need to improve it. But one of the ways we can improve it is by making it more transparent and being much more open to the fact that we have these biases and not just ignoring them and not just trying to uh, uh, say to people, um, well, you must believe this because it was published in a journal. You must uh, 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 you, know, uh, you know, take your medicine, whatever it happens to be. Um, so I think... The fact that there are anti-science people is in fact is itself a really strong argument for the sorts of stuff I'm talking about in the book that we need to be more critical of ourselves in science.
0: Mm, yeah. I mean, you can't pull the wool over people's eyes for, the, for that long. Right, uh, right. Uh, so um, I, um, there's also a question from um, another... I'm asking you only questions from my friends.
1: <laughs> no, that's fine. That's
0: fine. Um, Liam Kofi Bright... Mm. um who is also a former guest on this podcast and um who I've I've talked to about scientific uh, fraud when he was on the podcast um mm-hmm. it was more about why what motivates scientists commit fraud and oh, yeah. what kind of people commit fraud and he asks uh a friend of mine um uh he gives a name but I can't uh, it's a twitter handle and I'm not going to look it up Sure, okay. sure sure that's um, right one said that studying science itself has made him more distrustful of any one piece of work and yet more impressed by the enterprise as a whole. How has writing this book affected Stuart's attitude to his own practice as a scientist? And by the way, um, Liam's second question why aren't all scientists Bayesians? Um, that you answer in the book, so we, let's not answer that now. Liam needs to read your book. He doesn't the
1: answers, <laughs> yeah, there is a brief discussion of the Bayesian stuff. I mean, yeah, <laughs> just for the, for the listeners' benefit, the the stuff we've been talking about so far, the p-values and statistical power and all that, is from one sort of perspective on statistics, and it's the majority. It's definitely the majority of what's published in scientific journals. The vast, vast majority of scientists are using this so-called frequentist perspective on doing research, but there is a whole other way of doing research. it's a Bayesian perspective, and um it's what Liam's saying there is it, you know he's uh, obviously a fan of that perspective, and it has its pros and cons as well and I you know, I make the argument in the book that if we all suddenly became Bayesians tomorrow, I think you'd still find all these all these problems. um I don't think p values are the the cause of the problems. they're sort of a symptom the way p-values are used is sort of a symptom of the underlying issues in science, but I think that's a really nice way of putting it is. Is that when you read about all the biases and so on that kind of permeate science, um, it, it, it makes you go back. Actually, it makes you go back to the the original principles, such as they are. I mean, it's very hard to define what science is uh, and and what its principles should be. But I think a decent stab was uh, was Robert Merton's principles, which I talk about the Mertonian norms of science, which are you know been debated and argued about uh, in the you know philosophy and history of science for a long time, but the, the, I think they're the four really good principles, the first one being universalism. So, you know, it doesn't matter who's making the claim, what their characteristics are, their background or whatever. If they make a scientific claim, it should be assessed on its merits. Uh, um, the second one being disinterestedness, that scientists shouldn't have a, 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 you know, a strong bias in, in, in favor of one result over another or one theory over another or one um, outcome over another shouldn't have strong political beliefs that are forcing them, you know, to, to accept only results that look like this or look like that. Um, um, and then the, 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 idea of, of communalism, which is that we should share results with each other, that we should be always open for other people to come in and look at our results and share our data and, 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 and check it. Um, it shouldn't be for one person only working in their lab alone. It should be, there should be a scientific community that we share, uh, stuff with. And, uh, organized skepticism, that we should constantly be checking people's claims and that, that w- there shouldn't be any embarrassment or uh, awkwardness about saying to someone, hey, can I have a look at your data? Uh, um, I need to check it. Uh, and there shouldn't be, you know, um, we shouldn't be putting scientific claims out into the world until they've been rigorously checked and and uh, and had a sort of skeptical eye over them, which is, you know, what the whole point of the, the peer review system was all about. So it's really important to um, to to separate out these principles, which are the you know to some extent uh, more or less what scientists are kind of signing up to, even if they're not officially si- you know signing a bit of paper but the, 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 that kind of ethos is what scientists are signing up to so it 's really important to distinguish that from academia or you know industry or how science is actually done in reality so it's like in theory and in practice, and in theory science is great, and it 's the best thing we 've ever invented as, as, a, as, a, as a you know the human species. But in practice, it goes wrong in all these ways, and we 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 have some pretty good ideas of how we might be able to to get it back on track. It's just that our own human nature and our own biases and so on have have kind of suffused science and made it and made it um, uh, not live up to those principles that we that we really need it to live up to. Especially um, as you've as you've said, when we're talking about you know fields of science where people's lives are at stake, medicine uh, and, and so on. I mean, it's easy to laugh at the power posing and the psychic results and the silly soup bowl filling up and so on. But all the things I've been talking about um, and all the biases and so on uh, you know, operate in fields where you know, not only massive amounts of money are being spent, but, but people's lives are at stake. So um, uh, yeah, it, distinguishing between science and academia um, is one of the really important things that we need to do. Um, and we really need to reform academia um, uh, and get it back to real, actual science.
0: Hmm. So there are a lot of questions here from Twitter, but I feel as though you have really covered um mm. many of the many of the things that people are are asking. Um, one thing that several people are asking is um h- how journalists can do better in reporting on science, mm. and how lay people can do better at knowing, at uh, assessing. Um, the importance of a or the veracity or likelihood of a scientific finding.
1: Yeah. Well, I have a little appendix in the book about, you know, what you should be looking Mm -hmm. for when you read a a scientific paper. Um, And one of the things I mentioned there is is that I think an underrated way of of kind of critically assessing a paper is simply to look at what other scientists have said about it. Um, And that's really useful because when scientists see something that they disagree with, they um, will often... You know, post it on social media. They'll often post it on websites like PubPeer and so on. Um, and they'll also um, there are there are organisations which seek to you know get comment from scientists. So the Science Media Centre, for instance, in the UK. Um, I think there are similar there are similar bodies in other countries, but in the UK uh, we have the Science Media Centre, um, and they whenever there's a study that has some kind of you know media worthy result, press release, something that might be controversial they go and ask a whole bunch of scientists um, to comment on it. Um, and they will often say, well, actually, this analysis doesn't look like it stands up, or actually, this looks really strong. You know, they, ass- they, they assess it. They do post-publication peer review. So if you can find post-publication peer reviews, whether it's on Twitter, on someone's blog, on someone's website, um, via the Science Media Centre, that's a really good place to start. Um, and the best journalistic articles about scientific, you know, new scientific studies will include a quote from a, an independent scientist who wasn't involved in 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 that research um, now of course, just picking one person um uh has its own selection biases and you might you might find someone who's implacably opposed to that particular field of research and will give it a bad you know a, a, a um will give it a, a a poor write up um but but you know it's better than just ex- accepting the claims uh, at face value which is you know as as we've talked about and that's often uh, accepting claims made in scientists in press releases, which we know are full of misleading claims, there's been lots of studies of press releases, and they do mislead in, in, in various ways. So, I think uh, enacting this process of organised scepticism, like I just mentioned, the Mertonian norm, uh, and this whole process of, of of you know there being a there being a scientific community, really enacting that and getting as many different perspectives on a paper as possible, is a really good thing. And I think people shouldn't be afraid to. Um, to send papers to scientists uh, or email scientists and ask them questions, people are often very pleased to discuss their work. Sometimes they're a bit reluctant to, or well, maybe in a majority of cases they're a bit reluctant to send their data to people and so on. But um, often they'll ask questions. I think um, uh, just creating this this discussion around scientific papers is a really is a really important thing because you know what else is peer review but you know asking scientists to create a discussion about a paper.
0: Great, i f- I feel that we've covered most of the. I mean, um, mm-hmm. people are asking a lot of some questions that I actually don't understand. Um, so I don't know <laughs> well, how isn't it? Yeah. Is it? I mean, yeah. um, how does he feel about erinaceous representation? Razib Khan asked me that.
1: I think I think Razib uh, he had the chance to ask me questions on his podcast a few weeks ago or last last week, <laughs> whatever it was, and so he should have asked me that then.
0: And he's been a guest on this podcast too. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, yeah. Um, I think I I feel as though we've really covered a lot of ground and I I don't want to kind of exhaust the book. I want people to leave this podcast feeling like they need to go and read the book now, which is very beautifully written. Um, I have to say, um, so I have um, I I mean, I have a Ph.D. in English literature and I used to be a dance teacher and I write poetry. And uh, I have the kind of understanding of science that you would expect from hearing that <laughs> hearing that biography. Um, and also maths makes me cry. <laughs> um, but I found I was able to follow everything and it was just so delightfully written. Thank and you. you had so many anecdotes, well, not anecdotes, um, what should I call them? Examples. Um, so mm-hmm. many real world examples um, of what you were talking about. We haven't, I think that, I would just like to, before you go, I would hmm. like to touch on one other example, which is the Why We Sleep book, oh, yeah. uh, because absolutely everybody, um, everyone I know has been reading that book. and mm-hmm.
1: uh, I see it in every bookshop and every, you know, uh, I remember... Remember when we used to go to airports? But um, you know, in every airport bookshop, it was piled high. You know, it was everywhere. That book, a massive Watton. smash hit. Yeah, yeah. Yes,
0: yeah. I was actually. Um, he, a friend of mine, recently quoted that book in in there in in his book, um, mm-hmm. and when I got to that part, I just <laughs> I froze and I thought, well, oh no, yeah.
1: Um, the, the the reason I picked up on this was there was a really amazing. Uh, quite extraordinary blog post by um, Alexi Guzzi, who is a writer, and I, I um, follow him on Twitter and so on. And he wrote this blog post where he essentially said, I'm going to go through the first chapter of this book, this Why We Sleep book, and check, fact check every single claim. Um, and he just found a whole litany of misleading claims, incorrect claims, and... Um, you know misrepresentations of the studies so you know correlation causation errors you know writing up writing a a, up a study on sleep that was purely correlational like you know it correlated the amount of sleep people got with the um with their you know some sort of health outcome um and writing up as if it was causal as if it had been an experiment where they'd you know randomised people to get more sleep or less sleep and then check the effect
0: maybe they slept better because they were healthier
1: precisely precisely so there's a kind of a correlation causation error there um and it's not that the results are uninformative i think it's just that they shouldn't be written up as if they're causal um and you know various things like that but the worst thing i think was uh, this has been picked up on the chopped off graph yeah yeah it's been picked <laughs> up by um andrew gelman who's a statistician who writes a kind of um critical you know blog on on, on science it's uh, uh, worth a look um there's a, there's a, there's a graph of the link between hours of sleep and your, your propensity to get injured. And I think it's injury at work or maybe just injury in general. Um, and it's, and what it's, what it looks like, if you look at it in the Matthew Walker book, it looks as if the more sleep you get, it's very simple. It's like a staircase. The graph, it's like a bar chart and it goes down. The more uh, sleep you get, the more hours of sleep the less likely you are to get injured, right? It's a very straightforward, uh, simple thing to understand. Um, but if you uh, actually look at the original paper where that came from, there's another bar uh, of, I think, five hours of sleep. Um, and uh, it looks as if the people who get five hours of sleep are less likely to get injured than the people who get six hours of sleep. So actually, it, actually, um, it doesn't go against the overall thing in the graph, which is that you know getting eight, nine hours of sleep is is, is, is better in terms of getting injured. But it complicates the picture. It makes the graph look a bit more complicated and harder to explain to people. And so, what Matthew Walker seems to have done in in, in the book is just chop that bar off the graph altogether. So, chop a bit of the data away to make the story look simpler, to make the story look easy to understand, to make the story look more impactful. Um, And um, obviously, this is not uh, how we would want. This is not. Um, clear transparent reporting of science and this is something which has been read by i mean i don't know how many books uh how many copies that book has sold but an astonishing number mm. um i think would be that would be that would be somewhere you know uh, it would be an accurate description and it's um we need it's to really, make your really book sell
0: more copies than well that,
1: that would be nice wouldn't it that would be nice but uh, <laughs> I, I you know it's one of these things which you know um I, you know to go back to the whole thing about the journals are interested in in the studies of um
0: Malcolm Gladwell. You know, yeah, yeah. The
1: journals are interested in the in the really exciting things and less so in the things that come along and say, well, actually, maybe not. You know, they're much more interested in, in things that come along and say, if you don't sleep, you will, you know, your immune system will fail, you'll get cancer, you'll get injured, you'll die earlier, you know, all this sort of stuff um, than they are about someone coming along and saying, well, if you look at this graph, it's actually not a full representation of the original data set. Like, you know, obviously. And so um, it's the whole thing about, you know, the, the um it being it being much much easier to refute sorry mean much much easier to put out a bullshit claim in the world than to refute one and uh, I think that's that's really the situation we find ourselves in with with that kind of thing and that's not to say by the way I should be very clear that's not to say that the book is is, is wrong in every respect I'm sure there's lots of completely accurate stuff and I'm pretty sure that getting more sleep is in general better than getting less sleep for all mm-hmm. sorts of reasons mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that that's the case that seems very plausible to me it seems to fit with the evidence I've seen. But it doesn't mean that you can catastrophize it, and it doesn't mean that you can misrepresent data, um, uh, um, and, and then really not really respond in an, acu- in an adequate way when, when other scientists ask you about it. So um, I think I find that really disappointing um, and really frustrating, given that such a best selling such a best selling book, um, it has this kernel of truth, and I talk about this in, in, in with respect to quite a few other popular science books that are written by scientists. You know, there's a kernel of truth there, but it's just blown out of proportion um, by this need to,
0: to, you know, to
1: hype things up, to make them sound more important than they are.
0: Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, my my feeling um, about lifestyle advice, sort of preventative health advice of that kind is mm. that, I mean, what is important to me, the individual, is what will make me healthier, happier, etc. Not what is... St- uh, not even if, even if the data is accurate, what is statistically somewhat more likely to make people happier and healthier in general. And therefore, the only way to find that out really is to do n equals one kind of one person case studies on myself. So, um, you know, I, I know that if I sleep for seven hours without setting an alarm clock, and therefore seven hours must be the right amount of sleep for me. Mm. Um, well,
1: blanket, yeah, blanket advice like that is uh, is obviously you know um, is not going to be is not going to be you know particularly helpful. It's 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 no pun intended about blanket. By the way, given that <laughs> we're talking about, but um, but um, I was
0: immediately visualising.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, n- n- no, I, th- it's I think private. I think
0: you were primed clearly. That,
1: oh God, linguistic priming. <laughs> it's, it's it's come back. All all is forgiven. Um, um, no, it's it's it's. Um, you know, I, I I wouldn't advise people who necessarily like should experiment on themselves or, or or anything, but they might not. You know, a lot of a lot of the research is written up as if it it applies to everyone across the board, and it's the most important thing we can all do. But of course, there will be individual differences in how people react to things, and treatments, and interventions, and lifestyle advice, and 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 so on. And I think that is another nuance that is lost when people are trying to write a best-selling book about whether sleep mm-hmm. will help your life or whether it's. Whether it's about priming, or whether it's about educational interventions, or anything like that, or whether you should stand up in the bathroom before you before you um, go into an interview, like all of that is, is is all of that kind of nuance about. Well, in some cases it might work, in some cases it won't. Some people are going to react differently to this than others, and so on. Um, is all lost, um, and I think that's you know in in, so, in some way that's actually what the whole book is about. Is about how. Science is this really inherently complicated thing. It comes up with a really messy picture a lot of the time. It's not really um, the sort of thing that we humans who like nice, neat stories want to see. But that is how reality is. Reality is really noisy and full of all sorts of, you know, random fluctuations and messy pictures of stuff. And um, it would be a little bit better if this was reflected in the scientific literature Mm -hmm. rather than the sort of over pristine thing that we have uh, uh, to look at right now.
0: And there's so much wishful thinking. I mean... We want we want control. We want to know that we can kind of um, set our alarm to get the right number of hours of sleep, drink our eight glasses of water a day, follow this diet, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. stand with our legs akimbo in the bathroom to feel more confident, <laughs> etc. Um, and, and then then it will then it will kind of work. We'll have a guarantee of doing yeah. better in life. And unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I guess what Life this book is, is
1: what this book is saying is that uh, unfortunately, despite the whole system that we've kind of built up to try and to try and get away from that, scientists are no less prone to that kind of thinking than uh, than anyone else.
0: Mm-hmm. Stuart, is there anything that you have wanted to say or have hoped that I might ask you, which you haven't had a chance to say?
1: Well, I think I think we've covered a, 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 a lot. You know, as you said, um, there's the whole chapter on you know what fixes there are for science and I would encourage people to go and take a look at the, the book and, and, read uh, and the that, book. that chapter it's one of the longer chapters because there's mm. there's a lot to say it's, um, it's but yeah. excellent
0: you have really good ideas that I think would make well, a, seem like the, they would make a huge difference
1: well you would you would hope and certainly these and are things which we should experiment with yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 so so yeah um you know aside from that we've covered most of the main topics in the book so yeah it's just been it's been really nice to chat to you
0: it's been lovely to talk to you too and please do come to dinner <laughs>
1: thank you thank you very much <laughs>
0: Um, Thank you so much, uh, Stuart, and have a wonderful week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and 2 for T are entirely audience supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. plus. By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you are listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.